Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing it is to us, Lord. We know that sometimes your word can cut like a knife, but you, we know that you come behind it healing uh, and beautifying your afflicted ones, Lord. So we pray that you would grow us and strengthen us in your word. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this, this book we're studying, Ecclesiastes, it's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a book that could have been written yesterday. One of the constant refrains of the book is that there's nothing new under the sun. And the more you read it and the more familiar you become with it, the more true that becomes. And we're going to see that today in a pretty big way, talking about um, some cultural uh, hot topics in, in this passage. And... Um, Let's start out, by way of introduction, let me just say there's different kinds of mirrors. Real mirrors, metaphorical mirrors, there's different kinds. There's the carnival mirror that gives you a distorted view of yourself, and that's not a good mirror to have. You don't really want that one. And then there's the mirror of Erised from the Harry Potter series, which you would look into it and it would show you the things that you most desire, but it wasn't true. It didn't give you a real picture of reality, and so Dumbledore would say to Harry that it men had wasted away in front of that mirror looking at something that wasn't really real. It wasn't a true reflection of reality. And then there's those mirrors that, that people have in their bathrooms to put on makeup and whatnot with 50,000 Kelvin lights surrounding it with a big mirror so that you can get a perfect representation of your face. I have one of those in the mirror. The point is, right, if you, can, if you look good in that mirror, you're going to look good anywhere, right? <clears throat> Stage mirrors, makeup mirrors, when you, when you set up for, to do a show or you're in show business. And um, the great thing about that mirror is that you get a real accurate representation of what you really look like. And sometimes that can be a scary thing. Amen? <laughs> the lot older you get, trust me, if it's not, if not happening to you yet, it will. <laughs> um, and so it can be a scary thing and you can look at it and want to run. Or you want to run back to the mirror of Erised and just see the reflection that you want, that the world will give you. But the Bible's more like that last one. The Bible gives us an accurate representation of what we're really like and what we're really about. And ultimately, that's a good and beautiful thing. God's not just trying to tell us, hey, you guys, you, you're awful. He's trying to say, this is the reality so that we can see where we are, so that we can grow into his likeness. And the promise is someday... We're going to look into that mirror and see a perfect reflection of Jesus. Not in this life, but in the next. But in the meantime, striving after that is worthwhile. And so, uh, this passage is a mirror like that, and we're going to get into it. Um, And I hope it affects you as hard as it affected me this week. That's my prayer. So here's the thesis, the big idea the one overarching idea that the preacher, Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, wants us to understand from this passage. And it's this, that the way of the world is oppression, envy, and isolation. But the way of life is comfort, contentment, and community in Jesus Christ our Lord. The way of the world is oppression, envy, and isolation but the way of life is comfort, 
contentment, and community in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we'll take that one little phrase at a time first. The way of the world is oppression, envy, and isolation. If you, you know, the one thing that stands out, that just jumps off this page, you uh, if you read it a few times, is, is you, the notice that there's not, God is not mentioned a single time in this chapter. Not once. A whole chapter. 16 verses. Not a single overt mention of God. He's in there indirectly, uh, as he is throughout the book. But no mention of God. And so that should cue us off to understand that you know, when Solomon talks about under the sun, he's talking about the world and the way of the world and the way things are down here. And so we hit a chapter where God is not mentioned at all for 16 verses. It should, it, should, it should pick our attention. It should clue us off to the fact that we're talking now about deep under the sun. This is deep underground. This is the awful way of the world and the way things are. And the first thing he calls out is oppression. And oppression might be the cultural buzzword right now in our, in our, in our world. If, certainly if you go on any, col- any co- college campus, um, you're going to be, uh, a, a, the idea of oppression, or even more than that, systems of oppression, or matrixes of oppression, are going to be very much brought to your attention. The idea that there are groups of people, or there are, there are interlaced matrix of race, gender, uh, class, that form these systems of oppression that are very hard to break. It, 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 it comes about when people uh, <clears throat> of light, like people are able to rise to power and then create the rules that allows them to keep in power and then also write, rewrite the history that gives the perception that their power is right and just. And those things are very, very hard to break. And amazingly, the Bible is saying the same thing. As we read this passage, it's not, it doesn't say just oppression, but it says the oppressions, meaning that there is a, a, a systematic, uh, a systemic oppression or networks of oppression that rule over the world that we live in. And that is absolutely true. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the other side... Of their oppressors, and on the on and on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to conf- to comfort them. Now, if you look through the Bible, you do a survey of the Bible from the beginning books of Moses, the Pentateuch, all the way through the prophets and the latter prophets. They talk all about this unjust gain, false witness, abuse of power, both financial and otherwise. Uh, they talk about. Uh, all of these things being brought to bear by the powerful against the underprivileged, poor, widows, orphans, the prisoner, strangers, which essentially means people not like you. And in the context of Israel, Israel in the wilderness, the stranger that abides among you is someone of a different nationality or race. Uh, and then countless stories of violence and bloodshed in order to get that power. And then the denial of rights and justice to stay there. And so, essentially, the Bible is teaching the same thing. There are these systemic networks of oppression that we exist in, that we live in. But the Bible actually goes, I think, further in expressing that than you would get from a Marxist professor on a college campus. The Bible says that these things, it's not just the capital O oppressors, the super oppressors, but there is a systematic hierarchy of oppression, a food chain of oppression that moves all the way down the chain from the super oppressors down to 
each little group or clique of people. You know, just imagine, just think about the networks of friendships and relationships and communities that there are. And all of those communities, as we read the Bible, are all warring against one another for power so that they can then write the rules, so that they can then write the history, so that they can then be the ones in power. And and even worse than that, the Bible goes further to say that the root cause of oppression is inside of us. It's not an external hierarchy of power. It's our own fallen hearts, the thing within us that wants to seek out that power, the thing in us that wants to make ourselves better than the next person, the thing that makes us um, oppressors, more or less. It's that the sin nature uh, within us, and no one is immune to it. The engine of oppression is, is sin. And so what we see, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits of adhering to a philosophical system of thought that's 3,000 years old, rather one that's 150 years old, is that we can apply that to history, or we can look at how the, our historical train of thought has gone through the pages of the Bible, and we see that because the roots, the core issues of oppression come from out, our, out of our own very hearts, we see that the world is a... a a story of one oppressive system being fought by, an, uh, by others, and then when they rise to power, they become the oppressors. So the oppressed become the oppressors in the system of world order. There's this, this picture, uh, uh, I, can't, I couldn't find out who the author was, but it's a picture of the fall of the Soviet Union when all the workers are pulling down the statue of Lenin, and it shows, it cuts to the underground, and underground you can see that the statue of Lenin is actually hooked onto a wheel and there are four other statues in place, and as they pull the one down, the next guy pops up into place. Until what the Bible presents, oppression is far deeper and far greater than even we think about. Yes, there's massive systems of oppression that are over all of us, but it also filters down into the smaller organizations, into our own framework of friends and relationships, and all the way down into the center of our heart as we feel not only and see not only our sin oppressing others, which breaks our heart or should break our heart, but our own sin oppressing us and not being able to do what we wished we could do, not being able to live up to the standards we wish that we could live up to. So from top to bottom, everybody's feeling this. And it's the, it's the, it is one of the foundational realities of the world that we live in. And so the preacher, he lays this out, and then he says, here's, you know, here's his answer to it, or here's what he says is uh, our response should be. In verses 2 and 3, he says two things. He says, you, you would be better off dead, and even better than that, it would be better had you not ever been born. The Bible not necessarily what we would expect, but, I mean, be honest, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever woken up one day or, or had a really tough part of life or been a- unable to overcome something or had something really, really bad happen to you and say to yourself, I wish I was dead, I'd be better off dead, or I wish I had never been born? Just me? Just me and Job. Just me and Job and Jeremiah. 
just me and Job and Jeremiah and a hundred other people in the Bible. It's true. That's, that's an awful thing. And everybody feels it. And if we feel it, if you feel it, as affluent Western Americans, can you imagine how people in Malawi who are entering into one of the worst famines in history are feeling right now? Can you imagine how orphans that are in UN uh, peace camps in the Sudan feel right now? Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of them, parents slaughtered. Can you imagine how our brothers and sisters in house churches in China gathering in secret so that they might be able to do what we're doing right now out in the open and, and, and so grateful for it. Can you imagine how they feel? Can you imagine how the homeless right outside our doors feel and our friends here with us that, that come and worship with us? Can you imagine how the foster children in our foster system feel? The kids that, not the kids that are in great foster homes, but the kids that are in institutions because there's nowhere else for them to go. Or people that are home alone right now dying from cancer or from HIV AIDS and don't have anyone to help them. The second thing the preacher says is envy. And perhaps the worst part of everything that I just said there, for us at least, is kind of what the preacher doesn't say. When he says, when he says, I behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. We know from, you should know by now that in Hebrew studies that when the Hebrew authors repeat something twice, they want to get your attention. They're calling your attention. Twice he says there's no one to comfort them. Now we might, it might be, there's probably been times and places in the world, in the history of the world, where there was nothing but the oppressed and the oppressors and no one in between. But for most of history and certainly for our history, there's another group that's being mentioned in here and that's the no one. That doesn't mean that there's no one there. It means that there's the oppressors, there's the oppressed, and then there's a huge group of people in the middle who know about it and do nothing. Why? If we know these things, if we know there's starving children in Malawi, if we know that there are orphans in Sudan whose parents are, or have been murdered by brutal war, if we know that our brothers and sisters in China are suffering in house churches, if we know that there's homeless all around us right now, if we know the foster children are full our foster air is full of foster kids. If we know there are people all around us dying from AIDS and HIV, why? And I'm saying collective we, culturally. Why don't we care? And at least part of that reason is envy. Look at verse 4. And then I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. You already just said, he said, like an Aztec priest punching his fist into the chest of our materialistic and consumeristic culture and pulling out the still beating heart. He's saying that our materialism, 
uh, and our, our, our consumerism isn't so much about the fact that I want more stuff, it's because I want more stuff than you. And it's not just stuff. He's not just talking about money, not just possessions. Anything, uh, status, recognition, applause, appreciation, fame, uh, you name it. Anything essentially that makes us feel better than other people or even better that can make other people feel like we're better than them or at the very least making us feel like we're better than we are. Those kind of things he says is the engine and the fuel that drives us in the things that we buy, the clothes that we wear, the things that we do how we relate to one another, the friends that we pick, the church that we decide to go to, all, all down the line. It's not just about money, and it's not just about the world either. There's this awesome parable about uh, an ascetic monk in Egypt in the early, once in the 300 or so, once Christianity became the, the religion of the world, you could no longer really tell who was the super-Christian and the non-Christian because persecution had ended, and so guys started going out into the deserts by themselves and living off locusts like John the Baptist. And so there was this aesthetic out there, this holy man, this Christian holy man in the middle of the desert in Egypt meditating on God and and building his holiness. And there was a group of people there trying to tempt him to break his sanctification. And they were coming to him with women and coming to him with offers of money and fame. And none of it was working, couldn't break him. And then the devil came along and he said, hey, you guys, your methods are way too crude. Let me have a shot at this. And he goes over to the guy and he leans in his ear and he says, Hey, did you hear they just made your brother the Bishop of Alexandra? He laughed. Because you know, there's an old church planning joke too that says, you know, when the devil fell, he did not fall into the choir loft as most people believe. He actually fell into the potluck. And that's what that highlights is that everybody, no matter what ministry you're in, if you're the choir director, if you're in head charge of the potluck, if you're in charge of children's ministry, you see that there's this rivalry going on with people involved in those ministry. They want their casserole to be the one that's acclaimed. They want to be the one who's singing the solos, you know? We used to have this, you know, remember the Real Men of Genius commercials? We, used to, we, had the, we made up this joke song, here's to, you know, Real Men of Genius, here's to you, Mr. Overzealous Worship Leader. Meaning, his attention wanted to be about him so that he would be better, better and seen as better than other people. Have you felt it? You know what I'm talking about? There's that thing inside of us that glories at the failure of other people. There's that thing inside of us that sees things that other people have and we become upset. And he says that that core engine inside of all of our hearts is what drives us, is what drives us. And so envy is really about who's going to be best, who's going to be first, who is going to have the power, and that's about who's going to assume position of power, which then we know from the last point, it's going to then be the one who is, becomes the oppressor. And so the world is this war of oppressors. 
seeking to out-oppress each other and gain the, prime, the pole position of power. And, and the third thing is over time in the way of the world, over time that kind of envy produces isolation. Look at verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never, never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know, it's a sad picture of the guy or the girl who is so driven by the mirage of the world, they don't even know what's happening. You see that when he says, he doesn't, he doesn't he, so that he never even asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Why, why is this person alone? It could be that they just have no family and friends, possible. But isn't it more likely, and isn't it more likely that that over time, all the time, striving after those things, the mirage of the world, what the world promises has caused a breakdown in relationship. That envy is, are killers of families, killers of relationships, killers of the bond of peace in churches. There's uh, this Stephen, or what's his name? Uh, Matt Chandler. He tells this awful story where he says that he was a college pastor for 10 years and he said, never once did I have a girl come into my office crying uh, and complaining about her father because of the $2,000 Datsun with primer on the side that backfires every time she turns it on. She never, never once did he meet that girl that came into his office crying, my dad hates me. Why? Have you seen my car? It's a Datsun. They don't even make Datsuns. But he says he saw all too many girls with forty dollars and $50,000 cars coming into his office with just skewed understanding of relationship, with just a skewed understanding, so damaged relationally and, and emotionally and intimately because of their father's quest for these things of the world. And so it wasn't, it's not just that the father himself in that situation is... Has, has robbed himself of real pleasure, relationships, but he's also created systemic oppression in his own family by producing children who have no, or not raised, or reared, or understand what relationships are all about or supposed to be. And so it ends in isolation for the person, for those around him, all over the place. You know? Sum up this first point, the way of the world, oppression, envy, and isolation, is, you know, we talk a lot about how the Bible gives us as Christians a foretaste of heaven. But I think it's also true if we look at this and what the preacher is trying to teach us, that the Bible also gives us a foretaste of hell. In oppression and envy and ultimately in isolation. What a better definition of hell than you are left alone with nothing but your sin and your desires with no possibility of ever fulfilling them. And the Bible says perhaps there's a better way. The way of life. If the way of the world is oppression, envy, 
leading to isolation. The way of life is comfort, contentment, leading to community. The opposite, first, let's look at oppression or or comfort. The opposite opposite of oppression is comfort, and we serve a God of comfort. Read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted with. Now, there's a lot of comfort in there. I used to read that and get all confused, and then I was reading this chapter and studying it, and I went to that verse, and all of a sudden it made total sense. He's saying we serve a, a God of comfort, and, and, and we have the ability then to comfort those around us with the same comfort God has given us. And so here is the secret to oppression. The secret to oppression is not so much fighting against your own oppressors or fighting for your comfort, but it's seeking to comfort those around you. And then in, in so doing, producing chain reactions of comfort out into the world. And as Christians, we have an obligation to do this because of what Jesus has done for us, which is what that verse just said. And this is where churches get out of balance on this. There's, you know, some churches have gone to the extreme of abandoning the gospel and abandoning the primary work of the church, which is preaching the gospel and, and, and bringing people into salvation. That's our main job. And some churches have gone so out of balance that, they've, that, they, that they, just, they abandon that altogether, all in favor of just serving the poor, serving the homeless, something that's been typically called social, the social gospel. And then there's other churches that err on the total other side of the spectrum that say it's just about all we're supposed to do is preach the gospel and bring people into salvation. We have no responsibility whatsoever to the poor that are around us. But there are just myriad Bible passages that say otherwise. And so the truth is there's a balance in that. Yes, our primary job is to bring comfort to people who are oppressed by sin and death and to rescue them out of that by presenting to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowing them to come into the fellowship of the Spirit and, to, and, and have the promise of eternal life that God has given us. That is a primary and the biggest comfort that we can give the world. But it doesn't mean that we forget about all the Bible passages that also say that, you know, that, that God loves justice and that we are to seek mercy and that we are to be, the, you know, who's the neighbor? The neighbor is the one, the Samaritan, who finds the man on the road, even though he's racially different, they've got nothing in common, he's going to become ritually unpure by touching him, we have the responsibility to be that man's neighbor and to bring him comfort in the same way that God has comforted us. And we personally have all kinds of opportunities to do that right here at ResPres. Primarily, we have the ladle ministry, which we do twice a week. On Sundays at 2 o'clock, our volunteers come at 1 o'clock. On Sundays, we feed we, 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 give, we, give, we, we feed people from the homeless community. We also are working towards um, bringing more of a worship vibe to it and preaching the gospel there. So we're doing all those things at once. And then on Wednesday afternoons, we also have an opportunity 
to uh, where we, we, have a bi- we have a study of the Apostles' Creed going, and we also serve dinner again. And we need volunteers to come and to serve at both of those dates. And we need volunteers from this church to come and help with that. There's also an organization called Mama's Kitchen that we want to get involved in that brings uh, food and meals to homebound AIDS patients and people dying of cancer. As we go along as a church and get bigger, we're going to be talking about the foster care system and what we can do to, to bring kids out of that system. And we have missions where we are going to be able to, coming up in January, we're going to have an opportunity to go to house churches in China. And we're also praying fervently for opportunities to go to Sudan and there are ways that we can support our brothers and sisters in that endeavor as well. The opposite of oppression is comfort. And we as God's people have an obligation to give that comfort because what God has done for us. The second thing, the opposite of envy is contentment. The opposite of envy is contentment. Verse, look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. That's saying about the same thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the engine of envy is driving that and it drives them into isolation. And so Paul then, or, or the preacher gives us, he gives us a positive and negative example about how to go about doing that. First of all, he's not talking about laziness. That's one response. We would not just fold our hands and consume our own flesh. In other words, just drop out of working entirely if we're able, but instead to be content with comfort rather than conquest. In other words, to be content with those things we need to be comfortable and to forsake that engine of envy that drives us to seek after things and spend our money and our resources on things that are purely all about making us better than those around us or seem better. Do we have, you know, so we have to ask ourselves questions. Do we have or want something because we need it for comfort or because we need it for conquest? And that's a, that's a hard question. That's a hard question. The question we need to ask ourselves in our, in our daily lives is, are we failing to offer the comfort to people that God has called us to offer because of comfort, in order, in other words, the things that we need to supply for ourselves and our families, or because of conquest, the envy machine? Are we failing to supply comfort because we are chasing after things with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, so that we can seem better or look better to other people, so that we can be envied? 
And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And I'm certainly not trying to say that I know you and that's the truth. I mean, I don't know that. I know that all of us have obligations. We have kids that we have to raise and rent is steep in San Diego and we have to eat and it's not cheap to live here and people are stressed out and overcommitted and we have so many things that we have to do legitimately just to live in this culture that causes stress. But it's worthwhile stopping individually and as a church and saying, why are we busy? Comfort or conquest? Why is it that we're so stressed out? Is it comfort Is it conquest? Why is it that we're not able to give? You know, and God forbid this church uh, becomes a, a, a club for theological correctness. It won't happen, actually. I can guarantee you. God forbid we develop a culture in this church that comes together once a week to contemplate abstract theological concepts and walk out the door patting ourselves on the back and congratulating ourselves about how theologically right we are and then having that theology do nothing to affect our hearts to go out there and to comfort the people that are suffering all around us. This won't happen. There's a guy named A.W. Tozer most of you have heard about. He was a pastor in the 50s and he was famous, wrote books, people loved him, but his church never grew much above 800 people because it was said that it was too real there. It was, it was cutting. You, if you weren't ready to change, if you weren't ready to hear what the Bible said fully about Christianity and the Christian life, you would soon leave. And so his church never grew above 800 people. And if you're expecting to be somewhere where we just talk about theology and don't do anything with it, I can tell you right now, this is the wrong church for you. I hope that's not true. I hope you'll stay and see the beauty and the joy that comes out of as we encourage each other towards the working of good. Third thing, the opposite of isolation is community. Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Contrary, I mean, if this was your wedding verse, I, I don't mean to blow it for you, but contrary to a billion wedding ceremonies, this isn't primarily about marriage. It's about fellowship. It's about community. They're all male pronouns being used here. And it's talking about, you know, how community is beneficial and, and, and beautiful. When we, when we moved into our new house, we had, you know, somehow our three-bedroom apartment. I moved in with my wife. I had a bed and a backpack maybe a thousand books, but that was it. That was it. I put everything in the trunk of my, you know, my car, put everything in the, tr- in, the, in the back of my truck and drove to her house and we moved in. But when we moved out of our three-bedroom apartment into the house that we bought, somehow people must have come to our house and just dropped stuff off, right? We just had a house full of stuff. Garage full of stuff. 
And that would have been a miserable thing to have done by ourselves, but we were part of a church. Like 26 people showed up to help us with the moving van. It took three hours to totally move us from one house to the other. That's not possible without people sacrificing their day to come and help us. You know, there was a D- well, the first DSO we all went to. My buddy Pascal had brought this new tent. There he is. And uh, he wanted to be by himself in this new tent, and it kind of broke down, but it got, to about, it got below 30 at night, and he literally almost died, froze to death in this tent because he wanted to be by himself and, and have this, his space. But we, we had like three guys in this other tent. We were all fine. We didn't even notice that it got cold because we were able to keep each other warm. Community, right? Um, what else? What else? <laughs> you know, let me just say this. this. When it gets to the point when it says three are better than one, it's not the Trinity, it's not man, wife, and God, although you could extend it to that. It's talking about the fact that there are safety in numbers, that it is, it, but it is, that, is, that community is beautiful, but it's about so much more than just those material things. There's certain reality in the Christian life. In other words, every one of us here that's walking in salvation, walking in sanctification together, we all have blind spots. And the definition of a blind spot is you can't see it. But we think we're great. If it's just up to us and we're just relying on our own assessment of our own position and where do we stand in life, it's just up to us. We think we're doing great. And we need, we have to have we, if we're to do this, we have to have people who know us, that we trust, who know all about us, real accountability partners, real friends, real people who we worship with, that we really do life with, who are able to come to us and say, hey, this is what's happening. You can't see it. I know you can't see it, but this is what is happening. An objective source to come up and say, you, you've fallen into a pit. Let's get you out. Without community, you would never see it. Without community, you would never know. You would just, even in community, if you're not open to that kind of thing, or when people come to you and say, hey, this is happening, and you say, beat it, you're going to stay in the ditch. You know, that the thing about the cloaks over us, that it, there's this, um, you know, in winter it gets cold, and we need to cover us. We need uh, each other around to help us when... Things get cold when the winter comes. And there is a reality about the Christian life that part of sanctification is God brings us into the winter of our faith where things are hard. And we need friends there to walk us through it. I know I can count on more than, more than both hands people I know in this congregation who have hit that hard spot in life the winter has come, and if it hasn't come for you yet, trust me, it's spring, or it's summer, it's late summer, it's autumn, but it's coming, and we need each other. We need each other when those seasons hit, and we're all under spiritual attack all the time. We need each other to help us, shore us up when we sin, to be restored, to patch each other up as we walk down this road of life together. And so community is the place to do that. We need community. We need the church is really what we need. 
We need to be part of the church. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people come to me and said, oh, we didn't really like the church, so we just got together on our own and formed these little collectives, and we met in coffee shops, and it was great until the sin hit. Bang! Like a wrecking ball. And then everybody cut out. They went from collectives to disbursements overnight. God has given us the church in order to help us with that, give us structures to deal with that, um, and so the church is important. Part of how we're going to go about, how do we go about doing this? How do we maintain these sense, this sense of community in the face of the storm of sin and in the face of these systemic oppressions that surround us? And part of the reason is the structure of the church that God has given us. But even more than that, ultimately, and I'll end with this, is that we're able to stick it out because what it because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, we've been going through John's gospel and there's, he's said a couple times to the Pharisees, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And so we've taken that so far to mean, it means you can't come to heaven with me, basically. But you go farther along in the Bible and Jesus is talking to his friends and he says the same thing. At the Last Supper, after Judas has left, he said, where I'm going, you can't come. And so it's more than just heaven that he's talking about. He's talking about something bigger than that, even deeper than that. He's talking about where he is going, where we can't come, is ultimately to the cross and into the realms of death for us and then out in resurrection life. From the Garden of Gethsemane all the way to Golgotha, is a picture of Jesus being systematically isolated and oppressed. He loses all of his friends. He loses the the support of his people. Then he loses his own friends as they turn against him. And ultimately, as he is on the cross, he is isolated from the Father himself as he brings salvation to us. And so we stick it out and we fight for this idea of community with one another in the midst of all our sin. We don't cut and run when stuff starts getting hard. Oh, you don't pay attention to me. I'm out of here. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. I'm out of here. Blah, 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 blah. I'm out of here. We don't do that because God has given us his spirit to help us to persevere with one another. He's called us to do it. And ultimately we do it because Jesus suffered ultimate isolation to give us this gift of community. He suffered the cross in order to give us this community which is a foretaste of heaven. And so it's worth fighting for. It's worth sticking it out for. It's worth struggling with each other in our sin for. It's worth extending more grace than we have the ability to do. It's worth extending forgiveness to people when we, even when we don't think we can because Jesus has forgiven us and through his death he has given this community to us and it's worth it. I'm not going to tell you it's not hard because it is hard. We already, we're, we're learning that now. But I can tell you it's absolutely worth it. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that the way of the world is oppression and envy and isolation. And that the way of life is comfort and contentment and community that you have given us. And Lord, 
in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we see the envy machines in our own hearts throughout the week that cause us to go after things primarily because of how they will make us superior to others or seem better than others. We pray you would help us to catch that and to redirect it into worshiping you with all that we are, Lord. We, we know that you want us to be comfortable and we help us not to go the other side of the spectrum and, be, and go crazy about being aesthetics. But help us to live in that spot where you, as, the father, as our Father, promised to give us everything we need as we seek your kingdom first and its glory. Strengthen us in that, Lord. And Father, help us to love one another the way that you talk about love, in meaning that when we, to, to strive with each other and to suffer along with each other, and when we, if there's fighting or there's disputes or where there's gossip, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to overcome that with forgiveness and with grace and with love and really, really, really striving with one another for community because it's worth it, because you've called us to it, and because it came at a very great price and we should treat it as precious as it is. So help us remember these things, Lord, and grow us in strength, Lord, as we approach your table. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.